Hey everyone, this is Chad Harms, the pastor of Creekside Bible Church. Thanks for taking some time to listen to my latest sermon, a sermon about living a graceful life. It will play in just a minute, but before it does, I want to invite you to download our app. Our app is available for Android and iOS, and it is a great way to get the content that we put out as a church. You can listen to our sermons like the one you're listening to now, but you can also watch all of our videos, sermons, and otherwise. It's an easy way to know about all of our events, and you can even watch our services live on our app. And so I hope that you'll consider downloading it if you're consuming our content anyway. You can get it by going to wilsonville.church app. That's wilsonville.church app. Or you can search Creekside Bible Church in the App Store or the Google Play Store, and you'll find it there too. Again, thanks for taking some time to listen to my latest sermon. I hope that it'll help you to learn and live more fully for the glory of God. Hey, good morning, everybody. Thanks for being here on Memorial Day weekend. It's good uh, that you made it. I feel like everybody who comes on Memorial Day and Veterans Day, they get like a gold star in heaven. I don't have that on God's authority, but it seems like that. And so I appreciate you being here today. Uh, We are, I mean, I am uh, just, I'm thankful for those who have, you know, willingly sacrificed for us and for our country. It is an incredible reminder of of what Jesus did for us and on our behalf, giving his life, uh, you know, for our lives, basically. And and so I hope you will remember that today and not just celebrate your day off. Uh, But, you know, as you think about this day and, and I guess tomorrow and what we remember tomorrow, people giving their lives for our freedom, in essence, it does beg the question to segue into my sermon, what is it that you live for and what do I live for? And this is a life-altering, life-changing question. I mean, what is at the center of your life? What is the driving force behind your life? What gets you out of bed in the morning? Why do you do the things you do? What do you live for? In my life, I can, I can tell you the things I've lived for. It's gone in phases. Uh, it, for, for half my life almost, I lived, for, I lived for sports. You know, that's, that was it. I mean, that's the reason I got out of bed. It's the thing I wanted to do. It's the thing I did. I spent every day of, of most of my life playing one sport or another, whether it was in the front yard with friends or, or in a more organized capacity. I lived for sports. That's what drove all of my behavior almost. It's what uh, made me who I was in many ways, for better or worse. I can tell you there was a short period of my life where I lived for girls. Just the next one, you know, like who am I going to meet? You know, how's it going to go? All of those things. Uh, I've lived at times in life just to hang in there, you know, just to get by. I've told you about this terrible year I had that led up to me getting married. It's not why it was terrible, but uh, but we were planning a wedding. My great-grandma died. I was teaching. I was pastoring. I was finishing my master's degree. I was diagnosed with MS. I mean, it was a mess of a year. I was coaching basketball, and I really, I mean, if you would ask me what I was living for, it would have been like, just just to survive, you know, like just to finish, just to be done, just to get to my wedding, you know, I mean, just to have all this kind of end. Uh, if you were to ask me today and I was being totally honest and transparent, I would say I'm living to be successful and I hope that this is real too. I'm living to make an impact on people's lives and uh, both those things not inherently bad. None of these things inherently bad, but I think, I think they're the wrong le- reasons to live. Uh, what you live for 
matters, and it especially matters when you face pressure. We're in the last couple of weeks of this sermon series on facing pressure, and we all face it, right? It comes from external sources, it comes from internal sources, it comes from our family, our bosses, our kind of personal drive and ambition and vision and all of that. It comes from everywhere. Like, there's always new pressures and more pressure, and it builds, and sometimes it builds so much that we feel like we're going to explode, but we all, we all are facing pressure, and over the last several weeks, we've been talking about What this book called 1 Thessalonians, that's a a book of the Bible, what it says, what it has for us when dealing with pressure. How to live gracefully, in fact, despite the pressures that we have faced. And and this morning, what we're just going to see, and and I think you already kind of know this, but what you live for really matters and, and is most clearly seen when you face pressure. I mean, if you're living for sports, let's say, and, and your athletic career takes a turn for the worse, then, then you're not going to live very gracefully for a short time. I joked last week about this song called Blue Tacoma Country Song. I won't do it again. But, uh, but I mean, if you're living for the girl that's sitting next to you in your Blue Tacoma, then when she breaks up for, with you, you're not going to live very gracefully. If you are living for your job and to be successful in your career, then when those things go bad, when you don't don't get the promotion or whatever, you, you inevitably are not going to live very gracefully. And, and here's what we're going to read in 1 Thessalonians today. I'll just give you it up front. If you live to please God, if that's the goal and the hope and the aim and the drive of your life, if you live to please God, then you will live gracefully under pressure. You'll live gracefully in general. And here's how Paul's going to begin in 1 Thessalonians 4 verses 1 and 2. As for other matters, brothers and sisters, we instructed you on how to live in order to please God, as in fact you are living. Now we ask you and urge you in the Lord Jesus to do this more and more, for you know what instructions we gave you by the authority of the Lord Jesus. For those of you that haven't been around, I've said this almost every week, but it's important. The Paul, who wrote this book, was an apostle, a guy that planted churches, that led the early church, that was uniquely equipped by God to get the church off the ground. He had planted this church in a city called Thessalonica with some friends, and because of persecution, they had had to flee, and they kind of left this new, but healthy, but really immature church with a lot of holes in their faith. This church didn't really know, like, what's the next step? How do I deal with these things? Last week we saw that they didn't know what to think about death and people who died before the return of Jesus. Like, are they lost forever? Will I ever see my grandma again if she died because Jesus hasn't come back yet? They really have a lot of holes in their faith. But Paul says, before I left you, I did give you some instructions on living to please God. And he says, I did it under the authority of Jesus. Now there's this word that doesn't, that doesn't come out that really goes with our, our graceful life metaphor, but, but I think is an important word. It's a word that in my kind of formative 90s Christianity, it was used a lot. And that word is walk. Uh, Paul uses the word walk in the middle of this. It doesn't come out in the NIV translation, but it's this word that he uses a lot to describe kind of your Christian life and, and how it's going. And, and in my formative 90s Christianity, people would say, I always thought it was corny and kind of stupid. I don't really like church language that much unless it's biblical. But, but people would always say like, how's your walk? Do you remember people saying that? Nobody says that to you anymore. I think if you said that to somebody younger than me, they'd be like, 
seems fine. I don't know. What are you talking about? But we used to say this, and, and it's because it's a biblical uh, metaphor, a biblical idea, uh, and Paul uses it probably more than any other biblical author to, to describe how you should and sometimes how you shouldn't live life as a Christian. There's negative sense, but I want to read some of the positive ways that Paul uses this today. He says, and, and sometimes the NIV is not going to translate it, so you won't see walk, but I promise it's in all of these verses. Romans 13, 13, let us behave decently. Let us walk decently. Galatians 5, 16, so I say walk by the Spirit. Ephesians 4, 1, I urge you to live worthy of the calling you've received, to walk worthy of the calling you've received. Ephesians 5, 2, walk in the way of love. Colossians 4, 5, be wise, and it's actually walk wisely. Paul has given them some instructions on how to live the Christian life, how to walk gracefully through this journey that is called Christianity. But here, we must pause, and, and I think we must just ask this question. How's your walk? I mean, how is your walk? Is it beautiful? Is it graceful? Whenever I've thought about this metaphor in the past, I've thought about it more like a path, like you're on a hike or whatever, and, and I've thought about like the walk in terms of like, am I staying on the path? Am I going the right direction? Am I, you know, drifting into the weeds of sin and, you know, unbelief and dishonoring God and all of those things? But, but as I read it this time, I think just because of the way we, we kind of marketed this sermon series, I thought about it in terms of like ballet, really. And, and so I actually, I actually Googled this weird thing, like how to walk gracefully. And it turns out this is a big conversation on the internet. And if you want to know why, you can just picture, uh, this is in a lot of movies, but like girls learning how to be graceful and putting books on their heads or whatever and learning to walk straight. I mean, the first article I saw is so interesting. I didn't read all the steps, but 15 steps to walking gracefully. That's a lot of steps to learn how to step, right? Like I, I made me kind of question how I walk, you know, like I must not look too graceful. I, I loved this quote though that I saw and I think it's so important. It, it, it's a uh, it was in, on some video that I watched about how to walk gracefully. I know, sometimes you just never know what's going to happen in a sermon. But it said, a graceful walk is posture in motion. It's a really interesting idea, right? Like we talk about our posture and, and, and a graceful walk is posture in motion. What I love about that is, is I think that it spiritually is true too. A lot of times when you read the word worship in the Bible, it's, it's about the person's posture, like falling on the ground before someone, falling on the ground before God, basically lowering yourself, taking a posture that says you are greater and I am lesser. And, and then I, I just thought about that as I read this quote, a graceful walk is posture in motion. And I think the way in which we walk, the way in which we live out our Christianity is in fact a description of, it is an attribute of, it flows from the posture that we currently have towards God. When we are walking right, when we are walking gracefully, when we are walking in a way that is good and beautiful, it is a sign that we have postured ourselves in worship before God. Our walk will demonstrate our posture before God. Are we putting ourselves equal to God or are we bowing before God? And, and really, are we living in order to please God. 
What's interesting is, is that when we talk about walk, the pathway thing works, but also as we've gone through the series, don't we want to walk in a way that is graceful, but in a way that is beautiful, in a way that is excellent, in a way that is good, in a way that we feel good about? Like, man, I'm navigating these pressures really well. I was also on this article, or maybe a video, it all runs together at this point, called How to Walk Gracefully Like a Ballerina, and you got these things, right, like these big steps like this kind of deal, I'm not going to do it gracefully, you'll have to forgive me, and then you got, I wrote these down, I was taking notes, you got like this leg behind thing they do, I don't really know, that's not graceful at all, but I don't really know how to do it, but you kind of do this kind of thing, and then you got like this crossover thing that they do like this, have you seen this, is any of this making sense when I do it, probably not, and then they got the twinkle toes, you know that one, come on, that's pretty good twinkle toe and in the midst of this while I'm watching I think a video and taking these notes my son not graceful is in the background he's coming up on two years old I talked last week about how he hits his head all the time I mean Hudson is in the background and we had this balance beam which I'll get to in a minute and Hudson is falling and flailing and I'm thinking it's so interesting that when you're young there is an expectation that you will not walk gracefully. But as you grow, you should at least become more graceful. And I think what happens as Christians is sometimes our most graceful moments, and this is a sad reality, are the ones immediately after we are born again into the Christian faith. Because we never, unlike ballerinas, strive work, fight to become more graceful. And I think it's because of the main point today. We aren't aiming to live a life that is pleasing to God. Paul says, hey, gotta get your walk right. I would say you gotta walk in a way that aims to please God. Now what Paul says is so interesting because this next thing, this live to please God thing, it's at the heart apparently for Paul of his ethical teachings, right? When you think about ethics, what's right, what's wrong, uh, and you bring them into Christianity, Christian ethics, there is, at the heart of it, a desire to please God. Listen to what Jesus says, Matthew 22, 36 through 38. This is somebody talking to Jesus. Teacher, what is the greatest commandment in the law? Jesus replied, love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. At the heart of the ethics of Christianity, what is right and what is wrong is a love of God that drives you to want to live in order to please God. But here's what happens in life, and you see it so clearly in the New Testament. There's these two tensions in Christian ethics that that seem to always be battling against each other. On one side, there's laws and rules, and on the other side, there is lawlessness and immorality. A lot of what Paul writes in the New Testament in his other books is like to people who have done one of two things. They've made the ethics of Christianity all about following a set of rules, check one, check two, check three, make sure you jump through these hoops, do all of these things. Or they've said, don't worry about it at all. The grace of God's got you covered. Do whatever you want. As I thought about this tension, I thought about how it's so indicative of a, of a balance beam. And 
And what happens sometimes to whole generations is that they'll fall on one side or the other. Like I, I can tell you that, that I, I think in my grandmother's generation, I love her, but I think she would admit this to you. When she was growing up, that they fell towards this list of rules. Like, hey, your, your ethics are, are based on not dancing and not bowling and not going to movies and not smoking. And I mean, here's the list, right? We'll, we'll add to the list of what the Bible already says. And, and the whole generation kind of, fell off on this side, but we do this as people too. Now, I, I look at, at people in my millennial age group, and uh, some people call me millennial, some don't, but, but this opposite thing has happened, almost as a rejection, and, and they're trying to walk in a Christian way, they're trying to live gracefully, but they just keep falling on this side of like, it doesn't really matter what we do, those things that God said, they're outdated, God just wants me to be happy, God just, you know, he just, it's, it's, I'll do whatever I want and I'll assume that God's going to make up for it. And, and to live gracefully, we gotta, we gotta stay on the balance beam. This sermon led me all over the place, but like I, I ended up looking at uh, Simone Biles and watching her do her balance beam technique. And man, if I was jumping around on a balance beam, it would it'd be injury, not graceful, but she's doing spins and flips and all kinds of things and, and making it look so graceful. And here's, here's the reality. The, the middle, the perfect balance, the graceful way to, to live life is not to just follow a set of rules, nor is it to reject any ethical teaching whatsoever and to do whatever feels good or whatever you want, but it is to live a life pleasing to God and making that your goal. We like for somebody to tell us do whatever you want, or we like people to say, here's just the set of rules, do this and you're okay, but it's not graceful. This is rigid and cold and ugly and mean sometimes. And this is sinful and evil and abhorrent and awful and, and in the middle of it. And this is how it's always been since the New Testament was written. God is saying, here's, here's the deal. Live to please me. And want to please me because you love me. I would guess, I would guess that if, if many of you, you've, you became Christians a long time ago, you've you know, you, you haven't really moved forward in your walk. You feel like you're just as beautiful as before. You're more like Hudson and less like Simone Biles. I don't know any ballerinas off the top of my head. But you're just like, it's not that graceful. It's not that beautiful. It, it's maybe because you've bought into one of these two things and you've fallen off the balance beam of living to please God. You said, I will do it, I will fight, I will make sure I do everything that my parents said I had to do to be good and to be accepted and to gain their love or whatever. Or you said, I'll just reject it all and I'll try to do whatever I feel like doing. And, and then we go, why, why, isn't it, why isn't it beautiful? It's because you've fallen off and you are no longer walking gracefully. You're walking man, somewhere that's not right. And now just listen, Paul is like when he says this, I, I instructed you on pleasing God. He says, I want you to do it more and more. And he uses two words. He says, I ask you and I urge you. I ask you and I urge you. Paul really wants these people to continue to grow in this. Maybe you're a person who's like, I do live to please God. That is the goal of my life. That's great. And Paul would look at you today 
and say, I ask you and I urge you. That's the more important word here. It's a stronger word that can be used for, you know, a command in the military, but it means to speak with the idea of persuading, exhorting, admonishing, or encouraging. Urge is a good word. I urge you. I'm not just asking. I'm begging you. I'm hoping for you. I'm commanding you. I'm desiring for you to keep trying, fighting, striving to live in order to please God more and more. We get stuck, don't we? I think some of us have found the balance and we stand here. I've done it. I'm squarely in the middle. I live to please God. And Paul is saying like, well, no, no, you did it, but now keep moving forward. Keep learning tricks. Learn to jump. Oh, scared you. Uh, Keep getting better at this thing. Keep living more and more to please God. Don't stop. Don't be stagnant. It's really not that graceful to stand still, is it? Almost everybody can do it. Do it when you're dead. But... That was a bad joke. Um, If you are living to please God, Paul is not like stay here, be satisfied, you're good to go. He's like move forward in your desire and your ability to please God, to live to please God. That's huge. We must walk on the balance beam that is living to please God, but we can't just stand there. We must move forward. Like tomorrow we should want to please God with our lives more than today. I think it's a humbling question and something you should probably do oftentimes, like just to look back on life and say, do I live to please God more than I did a year ago, five years ago, 10 years ago? It's hard to see it. It's like growing to switch metaphors, right? Like it's hard for me to see my children grow. But when I look back at pictures a year ago, two years ago, I can see how much they've grown, how much they've developed. And I think it's good for us to take a little bit of inventory sometimes, to switch metaphors one more time, and to go back in life and say, is my desire to please God the same as it was a year or two ago, five years ago, 15, 20, 50 years ago? And if it is, what needs to change? Now, Paul is going to, be specific here and talk about specifically sexual sins, but I I want you to hear it in a more generalized way today because there's principles kind of underlying this one thing that he has in the forefront of his mind, but there's these principles that apply to us living in order to please God. Here's what he says. It's God's will that you should be sanctified, keep that word in your head, that you should avoid sexual immorality, that each of you should learn to control your own body in a way that is holy and honorable, not in passionate lust, like the pagans who do not know God, and that in this matter no one should wrong or take advantage of a brother or sister. The Lord will punish all who commit such sins as we told you and warned you before. Before, What is God's will? What pleases him? That we are sanctified. This is a word that means holy or purity or set-apartness. It's a, a word used in theological circles to simply talk about growth as a Christian, developing as a Christian, moving forward as a Christian, learning to live to please God more and more, but it's an important word because God wants you to move forward. We can be so bad about just thinking, I'm not this way, and I'm thankful I'm not wired this way. Some of us can get stuck with where we are or where we aren't, And, and what God wants, what pleases God is that we are moving forward. God is not so concerned with what you did yesterday as what you do tomorrow, mainly today, to be more specific. He wants you to strive to live for him right now. I think that many people live ungracefully because they're like, but I've done so many bad things. I've got this wrong so many times before. And God is like, I just want you to 
now strive to please me. I want you to be sanctified. I want you to move forward. I want you to grow. I want you to become more like me. I want you to live more fully for my glory in order to please me. Here's two ways that he talks about doing it. Controlling our bodies and not giving in to lustful or to passionate lust. It's a simple question. Take it out of the context of sex and put it in the context of life. And here's the, just the simple question. And this is what gets in the way of us living to please God. And we wish it didn't get in the way. And it would be easier if it didn't get in the way. But here's the whole deal. Are you living to please God or are you living to please to make yourself satisfied and happy and fulfilled? Because where most of us, all of us that are Christians are like, I want to live to please God. But then we're faced with these moments where we have to make a decision. Is it me or God? Am I going to be the one that's satisfied, that's pleased here? Or is God going to be the one that is satisfied and pleased here? Is it going to be me being fulfilled? Or am I going to strive to fulfill God's wants and desires in my life? He's like, hey, here's the deal. Don't use your body to fulfill your wants and desires. Use it for God's glory, for what he wants and what he desires. I just would guess that most of you, I want you to really think about it, because most of you would say, I want to live to please God. But if you dive a little deeper into your soul, I think that most of you are probably, probably living to please yourself. And that's why it's so hard when pressure mounts to continue to live gracefully. Because it, it threatens your satisfaction it threatens your advancement it threatens you moving forward in school or your career or your sports or your relationship with that girl or whatever other things cause pressure in your life it threatens that what's so amazing about pressure what's really interesting about it to me is that no matter what pressure you face in life it can never take away from or pull away your ability to live in order to please god in fact, I would offer that the more pressure we face, the more ability we have to please God, depending on how we respond to it. And if you're a person that genuinely is living to please God, when pressure mounts, when pressure rises, when people are saying, we need this and we need that, you should relish in it. Because you go, here's my chance to do more for God's honor. Here's my chance to show God how much I love him. Here's my chance to please God with my efforts in the midst of this thing that should stress me out. The reason that pressure brings so much worry and anxiety and stress and fear into your life is probably because you are at least in part living for your glory and to honor and please yourself. And pressure threatens those things but it does not threaten your ability to live to please God. Think about it. Now if you go, I mean, like, okay, why would I, I and hopefully you haven't asked this, but you might, I mean, why would I live to please God? And, and the simple answer is this gospel that we've embraced if we're Christians. If you're not a Christian, you have not embraced this story I'm gonna tell, but here's what we believe as Christians. We believe that we are sinners. That means we've done wrong things. Everybody believes that. Everybody knows that we've done bad, wrong things, that we've done things we regret, that we wish we wouldn't have done, that we know we shouldn't have done, that we wish we could take back. If we had a time machine, we would take them back. We've all done things like that. 
what Christians believe that's unique to us is that we believe God looked down from heaven, saw us in our sin, knew that that sin, those bad things created a divide, not just between people, but between us and him. And he said, I want to have a relationship with them so bad that I will go down. He came down in the person of Jesus, born at Christmas. Then he lived sinlessly without doing anything regretful, without doing anything wrong. He lived perfectly. And at the end of that perfect life, he allowed for himself to be brutally tortured and then killed while he paid the punishment of your sins of hell really while hanging on a cross and if we're christians we've embraced that story is true we believe that he got out of the grave so that we might have life eternally with forever with him and and there's no way that we can honestly look at that story and go Why would I live to please him? Why would I live for his glory? Why would I live to honor him? We owe God everything. It's only natural for us as as Christians to say, I want to live to please you. I want to live for your honor. I want to live so that you look good on this earth. Paul says this next, for God did not call us to be impure but to live a holy life. Therefore, anyone who rejects this instruction does not reject a human being but God, the very God who gives you his Holy Spirit. And I just want to make a quick note here. Paul's saying, look, what I told you when I was with you was divinely inspired. And Paul would say the same thing about his letters that we have in the Bible. What the New Testament has for us is, according to the New Testament, fairly, but if you are a Bible-believing person, You believe that the Bible is inspired by the Holy Spirit of God and therefore coming out of that, it isn't just a man-made book, it's a God-made book. And to reject its teachings is to reject the God who gave us those teachings. I bring this up because I feel like I'm surrounded at least through social media by people who claim to be God-fearing, God-following people who have now almost entirely rejected what the Bible plainly teaches Many times it's, it's kind of disguised in their own understanding or interpretation of these things that are so clear and have been so clearly taught for literally over a thousand years and they just reject it and say, well, I understand it differently. But to do that is to reject God. And that's what Paul is saying. If you reject what the Holy Spirit has inspired, then you are rejecting God. And as a Christian, we cannot reject what is in the Bible, what has been divinely inspired, what has been given to us by people through the Holy Spirit's power and claim to be living for God and claim to be living in a way that is beautiful and graceful, in a way that is to please God. And then Paul makes this final note. It almost seems disconnected, but I just think it's, I almost left it out of my sermon, but it seems so relevant because it's just a specific way, a specific thing that we can do in order to live a graceful life, a life that is pleasing to God. And it's not what we normally talk about in the church. It's so different. Pay attention to this in verses 11 and 12. And to make it your ambition to lead a quiet life, you should mind your own business and work with your hands just as we told you so that your daily life may win the respect of outsiders so that you will not be dependent on anybody. The word for quiet is connected to peace or tranquility. Paul is saying is you should live a peaceful, tranquil life. One author said it was a life free of conflict and hostility towards 
others. Another source said, Christian leaders endeavor to keep their members free of anything that might be construed as disturbance of public order. What Paul is saying is, hey, here's the deal. Live a peaceful and productive life. Not allowed an unproductive life. As I read those words, I couldn't help but think about social media and how it seemingly has been created for a loud and unproductive life. And you know if you've been around here for a long time that, that one of my greatest pet peeves, I guess, one of the greatest things I think the church is failing at is our use of social media because it has become a place for Christians to push a right-wing political agenda and to act like jerks without ever having to look another person in the face and think about how it's affected them and pulled them away from Christianity and all of those things. And I only bring it up because it seems that Paul is saying, if you're going to live a life that pleases God, it's not that you can't talk, it's not that you can't share your opinions, it's not that you can't have political ideas, but you should be focused on a quiet and productive life over a loud and unproductive life. Perhaps instead of posting about your opinions, you should do something to make the world a better place in order to glorify God and please God. I would say it this way, we honor God when we talk less and we work more. And this happens because we win the respect of outsiders. Does that sound like American Christianity today? Paul's like, hey, please God, live to please God. And and we would say so many things are a part of that. And so many things are a part of that. But Paul makes special mention, special mention to live a quiet and productive life in order that we might win the respect of outsiders. And today, when I talk to the average person who is not a Christian, an outsider, they don't have much respect for us at all. Because we live just like them but we sure seem to say a whole bunch of other stuff that isn't anything like they're thinking. So if that's you, if you're a person who's been loud and unproductive, make it your goal to live quietly and productively. But I want to finish by bringing in this New York Times article on a ballerina's walk. It said it is earned by years of plies and sweat at the bar and it is not left behind in the practice studio. If we're going to live to please God, it's not just going to happen magically. It's not just some meta- metaphysical thing. It's, it's really, it's really going to come by our desire, our work, our striving through the power of the Holy Spirit by God's grace. But we must be conduits of that grace who are fighting and working and, and thinking about it every day and every morning, waking up and saying, today, today, no matter what happened yesterday, today, I'm going to try to live my life to please God. And then, you know, it'll be 9 a.m. and you'll already have messed up. And and, and then at 10, you're going to say again, I'm going to live the rest of this day to please God. I'm going to do my best to please you, God. Help me. And then by noon, you'll mess it up again and you'll bow and you'll say, God, I've messed it up a bunch, but I repent again. Give me forgiveness and help me, God. I'm going to try to live to please you. And I think if we'll do this, if we'll be people who will fight and struggle and strive, God will say yes to those prayers. And over time, like a ballet, we will learn to balance in between strict rules and immorality, but we will learn to move forward in our sanctification and our walk. We will learn to live and walk in a beautiful way, even when pressure mounts. If you live to please God, you'll live gracefully under pressure. It will be a life of holiness that balances between law and immorality. And if you want to walk on this 
balanced beam of life beautifully, then man, make it your ambition to live to please God. Let me pray you'll do that. Lord Jesus, I know that I can be so guilty of living to please myself, of living to get by, of living to move this church forward, to, you know, so many things. Um, But I pray for me, everybody who sits in front of me, everybody who's listening online this morning, God, that we who are Christians, God, would make it our ambition to live in order to please you, that we would want nothing else and nothing more than to live, God, to bring you honor, to make you happy, God. Sometimes we have it backwards. We say this thing, God, God just wants me to be happy, Lord, but we should be saying, I just want to make God happy. I want to live so that he looks down and and sees my life as a a worship service. I pray, God, that... (laughs) that our posture to you would be one of worship, Lord, and our walk would reflect that. It would be our posture in motion. For those, God, who aren't Christians, I pray, God, that you would bring them into a relationship with you. Lord, I think it's impossible to live gracefully in the midst of pressure when, when we have not embraced you as the savior of the world because, God, we are only living for these things on earth. We, have, we aren't living for you and we're not living with the hope that we talked about last week and we haven't experienced the love that we need in order to love others, God. All of these things we've talked about in, these, in this series are, are not realities for those, God, who have not given their lives to you because they've come to believe that you died and rose again for them, God. And so this morning I ask that people would give their lives to you, Jesus. It's not gonna be by my words, it's going to be by your power, God, and your Holy Spirit moving in them in a way that, that is beyond anything I can say and so move in them and bring them to you, God, even now. Lord, let us be people that live to please you. I pray these things in Jesus' name, amen. And during this next song,